1: Welcome to New Books and World Affairs. This is your host, Christian Peterson. I'm currently a history professor at Ferris State University in Big Rapids, Michigan. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Joel Migdell about his new book, Shifting Sands The United States in the Middle East, which is published by Columbia University Press. This thought provoking work explores the ups and downs of U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East since the end of World War II. Migdell makes a strong case that U.S. policymakers have tended to either ignore or misunderstand the diversity and history of the Middle East when conducting foreign policy toward the region, especially when the George W. Bush administration chose to invade Iraq in 2003. Migdal also offers thought-provoking insights about the exact place of Israel in the conduct of U.S. foreign policy toward the region, and how we can best understand the most transformative moments in Middle Eastern history since the end of World War II. At the same time, Migdal offers a number of insights about how U.S. policymakers can best promote peace and stability in the Middle East in the coming years. Whatever a reader makes of these arguments, he or she will benefit from reading this book. Migdal does an excellent job of reminding us that U.S. policymakers invite trouble when they ignore the history of a region, or assume the universal applicability of the American experience when they conduct foreign policy. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I enjoyed talking with Joel Migdal. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in World Affairs. Uh, This is the host, Christian Peterson, and today we'll be talking to Joel Migdal about his new book, Shifting Sands, the United States and the Middle East. Uh, Joe Migdol, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Christian.
1: Joel, I wonder if you could start with uh, or start the interview by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: I'm a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, and uh, which is a beautiful place. I'm looking into the trees and mountains right now. <laughs> um, I have been here for over three decades before that i taught at harvard where i was an associate professor i actually started my career at tel aviv university for 3 years uh after receiving my phd in political science from harvard
1: uh yeah it's it's, it's stereotypical that washington has all the rain it's been doing uh it's been raining nothing but here in michigan for the last week it's been horrible horrible weather um so it's uh I'm kind of jealous of uh, of your situation. So I was, uh, you know, thank you for the background. I was uh, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your book, how you decided to write it, uh, what you know, the the process that you know, the questions you wanted to address. How you came up with writing this very interesting portrait of uh, United States contemporary policy toward the Middle East.
0: This book is actually quite different from anything I've done before. Uh, most of my things are theoretical and state-society relations and um, appeal mostly to political scientists, sociologists, and the like. Um, I've done some works on the Middle East, but they haven't been at all policy-oriented. Um, in the summer of... 2009, I had just finished a series of lectures, public lectures, dealing with the Middle East, dealing with the United States. Um, I liked the lectures, and someone came up to me at the end of the, one of the lectures and said, you're making this into a book, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, you know, I really hadn't thought of doing that at all. I was about to go off in the fall to, um, for a sabbatical to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and I had applied for an entirely different project, and uh, I said to my wife, what, "What do you think I should do here? This sounds like a book I could do." And she said, "Well, why don't you take the summer and start on it? And if it goes well, you'll talk to the people at the institute." And that it did go well, and I talked to them, and I said, "Look, I proposed one thing, but I really would like to do something else. What do you think?" And they said, we don't care what you do, just sit in your <laughs> office and write whatever you like. And so it was in that year, 2009-2010, that I got a first draft of, um, of this book. The first
1: draft in 2009-2010? Okay, right. and you use the term uh, shifting sands. Uh, I think uh, the listeners would like to know what exactly uh, do you mean by that uh, when you when you make advance that argument uh, or you advance the argument in the book and you use it as a book title
0: right so the the central theme of the book is that the United States came to the Middle East starting when President Roosevelt made a visit to the Middle East um, at the very end of World War II to meet with the Saudi king. And um, the United States developed over the next few years a kind of model of how they were going to be um, a daily player around the world in every region of the world, including the Middle East. And um, it was a sort of fixed plan. Um, And what I argue in the book is that these regions were not always particularly conducive to the plan, a plan that may have worked in Europe but not necessarily in the Middle East. And the Middle East was a dynamic changing region and using a kind of cookie-cutter model there didn't really work all the time. And the shifting fans refers to this tension between the fixed plan and the changing dynamic Middle
1: East. And what do you think, uh, in your estimation? I mean, I mean, you argue this in the book are kind of the three uh, kind of paradigm shifts, if I can use that term, that happened um, in the Middle East. Uh, that, in many ways, the American, well, in a lot, in most ways, the American policymakers did not seem to fully grasp. Uh, Uh, during this, uh, during the time period of your book?
0: Right. Well, first of all, I I sort of, as I wrote the last draft of the book, and this was in 2012, um, I came to the realization that the Middle East has undergone a kind of convulsive change, change in who the leading powers are and what the main lines of conflict are and what the 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 um, state society relations are in the area that that the Middle East has gone a, ha, undergone a convulsive change about every 30 years starting in 1918 when the Ottoman Empire disintegrated and the European imperialists took over then to 1948 30 years later with the creation of Israel and shortly after the um, birth of nationalist regimes in Egypt and elsewhere. Then 30 years later in 1979 with the Iranian Revolution and the Egyptian-Israel Peace Accord, and finally in 2011 the the Arab Spring and all the convulsions we're going through now. And um, in particular when the U.S. came on the scene, uh, particularly from 1948 to 1979 all sorts of things were happening, Arab nationalism was growing. And then by the end of that period, beginning to fade, um, regimes that were uh, decidedly anti-American came, uh, were were the, the key powers in the region, Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. And then in 1979, a whole new set of convulsions occurred. And some of the changes I refer to there include the... Um, resurgence of Shiites and their uh, particularly um, with the encouragement of the uh, Iranian Revolution but throughout the Middle East the the end of Arab nationalism as a force and the growth of political Islam was a a second major uh, change and the demise of the core powers Iraq, Syria and Egypt, Egypt in particular um, as the leading powers of the region, and now a p- peripheral powers, powers on the periphery of the region, non-Arab, Turkey, uh, Iran, and Israel became the major players. So those are the three major changes: the the Shiite resurgence, the death of Arab nationalism, and growth of political Islam, and these new powers
1: yeah it's it's very interesting um, the way the way you frame that it's it's not it's, I haven't seen it framed that way in a lot of the works I've read and you also make some arguments that to be frank some people have agreed with and some people have found a little uh, what's the word I'm looking for revisionist as far as the position of uh, Israel and u.s foreign policy um, I was wondering if you'd like to say a little more about where Israel fits into your story uh, in your book well,
0: plays a big role, Um, and it's it's quite interesting. Um, I start off with what I think is one of the most interesting moments in American foreign policy history, which was a meeting in President Truman's office days before the State of Israel was declared, in which Truman had his wise men, his key players, plus his personal... um, his personal advisor, the kind of Karl Rove of the time, Clark Clifford, uh, sitting in an office. And Clifford argued that the United States should recognize this new state of Israel that was about to be created, that it was going to be a strategic partner for the United States, that it would strengthen the United States, and all the others in the room, including George C. Marshall, the author of the Marshall Plan, and Dean Atchison, and many famous figures of the time argued that the United States should not recognize Israel because it would weaken America's position in the Arab world. And Truman went with um, Truman went with Clifford and recognized Israel, much to the dismay of the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and the others who were there. Um, But the truth is that through the fifties and the early, and through the 60s even, the United States sort of kept uh, an arm's length between itself and Israel, very fearful of alienating the Arab regimes. It was only in 1970, and I devote a chapter to this, that... um, Israel became a kind of strategic partner for the United States. What I mean by strategic partner is um, doing things for the United States that the United States wasn't willing to do itself. And this, came, this happened in a, a war called Black September, a war between Jordan and the um, Palestine Liberation Organization uh, headed by Yasser Arafat, a civil war inside Jordan. And the Syrian army entered that entered into Jordan on the side of the um, Palestine Liberation Organization, and the United States as, saw this as a move by the Soviet Union sending its client state, Syria into a pro-American state, Jordan, and it wanted to stop that. But the United States was in the middle of the Vietnam War. Everything was happening um, at home regarding the Vietnam War, including Kent State and other things at the time. So the United States asked Israel to intervene against Syria to protect the pro-American Jordanian regime. Israel actually never did intervene, but it sort of massed some troops and it buzzed with its plane, It buzzed the, uh, the Syrian convoys, and the Syrians withdrew from Jordan, and the Jordan government won the war. And that was seen as the beginning of a strategic relationship with Israel that lasted for about 20 years. Um, and uh, and was, I think, a key moment for the United States in the Middle
1: East. Yeah, it's an interesting argument. I haven't read, or in a lot of works I've read, uh, the authors haven't devoted that much attention to that episode. Uh, why do you, do you have any thoughts on why that might be? Uh, you seem to, and in fact, it's, it's very interesting to read about why other historians perhaps haven't devoted as much attention as they should to that moment.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, it is. It was interesting to me too. I think part of it was that the 1967 war, which happened three years before that Black September war, was such an earth-shaking event that his, historians tended to gravitate to it to try and understand the Middle East. And I, I don't want to minimize the impact of the 67 war. We're still seeing its effects today. But I think on this question of the United States' relationship to Israel, that 67 war was less definitive than this very minor, relatively minor, at least uh, to outsiders, uh, episode called Black September. Actually, in the last, I guess, maybe three years, I have begun to see historians actually pick up that black september event and so we have a number of people working on that and i think beginning to realize its importance
1: okay that's it's interesting um kind of uh picking up uh you know when, when black the black september uh war ended uh how would you, uh, you address the subject in your book? How would you address or uh, judge uh, Richard Nixon's handling of Middle Eastern affairs? And by extension, I'm, I'm obviously including uh, Henry Kissinger in the mix. What do you, how do you evaluate Nixon's policies toward the region?
0: Nixon, um, Nixon found the region itself totally perplexing. And, and here was a president, I think, who understood uh, international relations probably better than any president since uh, Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, uh, he 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 wants to keep away from the Middle East. He said there's no winning for the United States in the Middle East, and it's a complex area in which anything you do is is bound to backfire. And so, and and he was also deeply remember deeply deeply involved in Vietnam. That was that was where his mm-hmm. attention was. On. So the Middle East was a kind of sideshow for him. Um, he tried to establish a very strong relationship with the Shah of Iran, seeing the Shah as a, the potentially most important partner that the U.S. could have in the Middle East and who would do the U.S.'s bidding in the Middle East. And um, and that failed. Um, Kissinger never recognized that. Kissinger, even in his memoirs, talked about how great a friend the Shah had been to the United States, but the Shah was not a great friend. What the Shah did was take an awful lot of money and arms from the United States. But in almost any conflict where he could have played a role in furthering U.S. interests, he withdrew. He he simply didn't get involved, and um, so in that sense, it was uh, a failure. Where the United, where Nixon and Kissinger succeeded, um, and I think quite impressively, was that they were able to break through that Gordian knot that had been discussed back in Truman's time which is if you befriend the Israelis you automatically alienate the Arabs and what Kissinger was able to do was to befriend both the Israelis and the Egyptians, the most important Arab power, simultaneously and shepherded the way for the eventual peace treaty between the two now, a lot of that was luck. Um, uh, Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, I think was probably more important here than Kissinger was because he recognized that if he was going to achieve his aims in Egypt, he was going to need the United States to put some pressure on Israel, that his old uh, patron, the Soviet Union, couldn't do that. But nevertheless, they did shepherd in that period of where, and I think the most productive and successful period for the United States, the 1970s, before the Iranian Revolution, when when the United States had friends in Iran, Israel, Egypt, and was partner, trying to partner with all of them and, and not doing a half-bad job of it.
1: The Shah, I've always found, is a, is a hard person to wrap my head around, um... Like you said, he didn't seem to always come to to help the U.S. Uh, I remember a quote I read. I think it was David Farber's book, uh, Taking Hostage. Uh, I can't remember exactly who he was arguing with, but the Shah said something to the effect that he was asked to, uh, you know, lower help lower oil prices during the oil embargo um, after after the Yom Kippur War, and he said something to the effect that you know oil is going to run out someday. And Americans are just going to have to be tougher. They're going to have to learn how to live with less. And, when, and for the time being, we're going to take as much money and oil as we can get. And the U.S. Uh, didn't really have an answer for that type of argument. Uh, and here he is supposed to be like, you know, our protector of American interests in the regions. And he's telling the American public to get tougher and deal with less. Um, Do you think, uh, I mean, do you think at any level when, you know, as when the Carter administration took office that whether it's Brzezinski or Vance or even Carter had a good understanding of, uh, you know, of the Shah's real place in the Middle East and, you know, the unpopularity he had developed at home?
0: Right. I think, no, I don't think that they did. Um, You know, throughout the book, I, I say that there was a kind of disconnect between the um, Foreign Service officers and intelligence officers who knew an awful lot about the ins and outs of the Middle East, and the top policy-making bodies like the National Security Council and the President himself, who really didn't um, either understand or care to listen to these experts in any any great detail. Um, There's a very funny... Seen uh, scene in um Kai Bird's uh, recent biography of the spy, uh uh Robert Ames in which he in which he talks about Reagan being briefed by the head of the CIA, William Casey, and Casey leaves the room and and Reagan says to his aide, you know, that guy mumbles. I didn't understand the words he said. And but it didn't seem to bother pretty much that he didn't He didn't understand the work, he said. So, no, I don't think they had a very good understanding of the Shah. And they certainly didn't understand how alienating the coup that really propelled the Shah into such a strong position in 1953 in Iran, which was supported by the United States and overthrew a, a democratically elected government, how deeply... Felt that uh, intervention by the United States was in Iran, and how um, how much uh, hatred there was both for the Shah and for um, the United States.
1: Yeah, that's that's certainly that's certainly my sense. But um, I've always it's interesting with Carter as is if uh, Israel had had a different political leadership at the time, if. Something could have come out of uh, the Camp David Accords as far as the Palestinian issue. Is that just wishful thinking on my part or um, just, you know, history, you know, happens the way it does and we, you know, we, we deal with the, the the after effects? I mean, if, if, if things had been, the stars had been aligned differently, could that theoretically Carter near the end of his presidency set down at least some process for beginning, you know, healing the divisions in the Middle East? Or was that just never in the cards?
0: yeah i um there's a lot of speculation on that and mm-hmm. uh you know in that book that I just mentioned by kai bird the, the Ames biography the i think it's called the good spy um the, Ames himself believed that they were always on the verge, and if they could just turn the right people, they could gain that kind of um comprehensive peace between Palestinians and israelis and and Arabs and Israelis generally. You know, I think at certain moments, uh, maybe right now, today in 2014, a different political leadership in Israel could make a difference. I don't think that was true in 1979. The the um, party in power that we could was not going to cede much to the Palestinians and the Labor Party, which was the dominant opposition that had been in power for so many years. Also at that time was not in a position where it was going to make the kind of moves necessary to achieve you know a serious um, a serious resolution of the conflict
1: yeah that's that seems to be that's my sense as well um, you don't devote a lot of attention into your book but I'm curious if you might say a few words um, about uh, Ronald Reagan's policies in the Middle East and what you sense uh, from your research uh, about his role and because I, I asked the question I'm interested is he seems to be the poster boy for conservatism in many ways so if only, what would Ronald Reagan do here what would Ronald Reagan do here are there any lessons we can take from his handling of the Middle East I mean obviously there's some lessons not to be taken but uh, my sense is, is 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 there just the iran contra scandal is the end of the story, or did he do anything that is of value when we look at kind of navigating the shoals of the Middle East today?
0: right well, you know the the um, uh, 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 the kind of sad story of American foreign policy generally is how presidents can get so distracted and invested in, a particular, in particular crises of the times or issues of the times that the rest of the world really doesn't get the attention it needs, and which may have long-term effects, and you can look at right now at, at what's happening with... ISIS and um, Obama and the Middle East and and begin to think about all the other problems that need addressing in Latin America and elsewhere that just simply aren't getting attention. And that's what happened during the Reagan period. The Reagan period was focused on Nicaragua, um, Central America, and it was focused on what at first, was seen as the evil empire, the Soviet Union, and this tremendous buildup that Reagan um, initiated to, um, um, to fight the Cold War, and then Reykjavik, where he sort of turned and really uh, paved the way for a recon- some kind of reconciliation between the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, and himself. And the Middle East got really very little attention. It came in, just as you said, in the Iran-Contra affair. But really, Reagan was much more interested in the Contras than in Iran. Um, and and it wasn't even Reagan, really. It was, hey, the uh, Secretary of State at the time. What's interesting is that at the very end, the last year of... Um, of, the, of the administration, uh, the Reagan, second Reagan administration, it, uh, Secretary of State Schultz began to put some attention to the Middle East um, and to the notion of putting some pressure on Israel to recognize and deal with the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, it was the time when um, the uh, Arafat was coming to move, slowly moving towards the conclusion that there would be a two-state solution rather than the Palestinians hoping to eliminate Israel altogether when they eventually, uh, soon after Reagan got out of office, they declared a Palestinian state. So, um, so at, at, it was only then – and I don't think there were too many lessons – to be drawn from that, I think the real action came after Reagan, uh with the first uh, Bush presidency, um, George H.M. Bush.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a good segue, actually. You devote a lot of attention in your book to the Gulf War, or the first Gulf War, that is. Um, would you like to say more about that and uh, why you think that's such an important moment um, in the Middle East?
0: Sure. Well, I mentioned earlier how the United States had forged this strategic partnership with Israel, and that first Gulf War in 1990-1991 uh, spelled the end of that relationship. Um, the The United States at that time really felt that it could put together a working coalition to um, counter Iraq, and, uh, and Iraq's um, invasion of Kuwait, and it did put together this 30-plus countries, and I think that American foreign policy makers also saw this as the basis for a long-term um, role of the United States in a post-Cold War world, that they that could put together this broad coalition of the United States at the, at the helm To prevent the kind of aggression anywhere outside the Middle East as well that the kind of aggression that Saddam Hussein had undertaken and to put together that coalition they felt they had to give the cold children to Israel that Saudi Arabia and Turkey and and maybe not Turkey so much but Morocco and Egypt and others would be very reluctant Syria was even in that coalition to very reluctant to participate, in fact, wouldn't participate in a coalition that included Israel. And so the strategic relationship with Israel unraveled. It doesn't mean that Israel sort of went off the charts. There still was a lot of cooperation between the militaries of Israel and the United States and intelligence. But the kind of strategic relationship that existed from 1970 to 1990 um, unraveled, and uh, the United States really saw this new path towards foreign policy with this broad coalition, no other superpower around the United States at the helm.
1: It's, 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 an, inter- it's an interesting argument in light of, you address it in your book in several places, uh, the John uh, Mersheimer and Stephen Walt thesis about the power of the Israeli lobby and kind of for lack of a better term, messing up U.S. foreign policy and diverting the United States from its natural interests—and I'm putting those in quotes uh, here—I'd wondered if you just say a brief, um, a few words, or excuse me, a, fr- a few words about uh, what your uh, evaluation of that thesis is in that uh, very controversial book.
0: Right. Well, no, no one can deny that um, APAC, the uh, the lobby. For Israel in the United States is powerful. It is powerful, and there was just another article about it in the New Yorker uh, a couple of weeks ago, which uh, which reinforced that point. On, on this is a, a seriously powerful lobby, probably second only to the uh, National Rifle Association. But um, I think that uh, uh, Walt and Mersheimer sort of get get it wrong when they try to understand the distortion of American foreign policy through the power of AIPAC. Yes, AIPAC had a lot of power, particularly in Congress, um, and often made it difficult for any president to kind of take on Israel because of the social capital that he would lose um, by opposing Israel. But, uh, it, it seems to me that that, that thesis is way overstated, that American interests as the United States understood them, and as I read, as I kind of read through all these protocols and all the history of American foreign relations in the last 65 years, it's very hard to see APAC playing, um, more than an auxiliary and I don't think they read through those protocols. I don't think they read that history very well. And I think they just sort of slapped that thesis onto, uh, uh, on far too easily.
1: Well, I, I like how you addressed it in your book. You were direct and to the point and, you know, I think uh, in many ways blew it out of the water. What I liked about it, and I'm obviously, I'm not a, a, a specialist on the Middle East like you are, But a lot of people dismissed it, and I don't even think they ever read the book. They just immediately said it's anti-Semitic, it's anti-Semitic, it's terrible, and I don't think they ever really grappled with it other than just passing it off as anti-Semitism. So I appreciate that in the book that you took it as an intellectually serious argument and I think, you know, showed the holes in it. Um, Well,
0: they're intellectually serious guys. (laughs) they're, They're two of the main international relations specialists so I think you have to take it um, seriously but I think they had also if I can just say a word more on it and I say this in the book these are these two figures are what political scientists call realists which believe that um, that national interests um, come from a variety of of factors that have to do with population size and Geographic uh, placement of a country, of its military strength, of its economic strength, and so on. And here they just sort of saw all the all what what any realist would see as the national interests of the United States it, um, as distorted by this one lobby, which seemed not to make sense in their own hmm. terms.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Um... It's, it, well, I, I want to come back to the issue of, of polyscience of poly uh, in the Middle East in a bit, but I was wondering if you could uh, say something about the uh, U.S. relationship with Iran since uh, 1979 and the Islamic Revolution. Um, you devote a lot of attention in the book uh, to Iran and it's, it's, its ups and downs as far as its regional influence uh, since the revolution. Uh, so I was wondering if you could say something uh, about that.
0: Well, you know, the 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 relationship with Iran has been, um, I think, the centerpiece of um, the the American place in the Middle East. But also, the, Iran has been the most important and powerful country the United States, notwithstanding, in the region for the last you know, thirty years. Um, so, what what is it that that the United States finds so um, disturbing about Iran? And I think the answer lies in that the that Iran has a very very different understanding of the way governments and states should be organized. The United States had this notion of, of secular governments, of democracy, of um, sometimes supporting dictators as well. Here the um, the uh but all of these were seemed to be status quo or stable conservative forces that would guard the that would rule their own peoples and not cause tremendous trouble outside. Iran really had a radical vision for the Middle East, and this was new Islamic republics in which Islam would be the the, center, the centerpiece of uh, politics, and that this was a um, a a uh, revanchist or revisionist vision that they would they had the responsibility to sort of not only rule their own people this way, but to bring this sort of rule to others. And particularly to other Muslims throughout the um, throughout the region, and so here you had a status quo power like the United States facing off against a a revisionist power that wanted to change the entire the entire region and what Iran did was create a, a set of allies that created what I call a northern tier. Um, that is from the Persian Gulf, you had Iran and then Syria to the west and then to the west of that, Hezbollah in Lebanon, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and this and this uh, I think posed some serious geostrategic challenges to the United States um, which, and I think those were the defining issues of the relationship
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the term status quo, um you make the argument in the book that the American government, or whatever, uh, stuck with—I guess is a better way of putting it—with a lot of these Middle East, you know, authoritarian rulers that ruled for, you know, it depended, you know, whether it's Libya or other places, Egypt, the Mubarak regime, for far too long, and didn't really help its interests by sticking with the status quo. At the same time, you have a government, uh, the George W. Bush administration, that purposely comes in to kind of break the logjam of the status quo in its own unique way, and also causes nothing but trouble for American foreign policy. Um, I was wondering if you uh, could say a a few words about uh, your evaluation of uh, the the second war in Iraq and the policies of uh, the George W. Bush administration.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, the United States, through the second half of the 20th century, the the half century between the end of World War um, II and the end of the century, basically defined for almost all that period, except for the last 10 years, defined American foreign policy in terms of the Cold War. And so, everywhere, everywhere, they were supporting Status quo governments, as long as they were anti-communist, and this meant Noriega in Panama and uh, in the Philippines, and, and 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 you could you know name it anywhere, and the, and the Middle East was no exception. Where they could find stable rulers who were willing to line up against the Soviets, they were willing to uh, abide them. Now. Um, the, the last 10 years of the 20th century, the people began to rethink this. First of all, the Cold War was over. There was no Soviet Union. Um, what was American foreign policy going to be? And George W. Bush really began to um, see a different set of threats to the United States. And that meant a kind of now revisionist policy by the United States to forestall these threats. Um, And what we called this was regime change. We were going to knock out certain people, mainly Saddam Hussein, um, in order to bring about the kind of order that we wanted. So, this was a truly imperialist policy in the sense that it really brought the United States into the, into the world in a much different fashion from before, in which it really was trying to shape what the world would look like
1: You use the the term reverse domino theory. I, I thought that was very interesting how you worded that, and it seemed to be my mind you were actually articulating better than the Bush administration failed to do it many times and people especially the president when they asked him what he was trying to do and he he included the uh iraq war and the war on terror um that seems to be i think what he had in mind would you like to say something more about the reverse domino theory
0: right well the original domino theory comes from southeast asia where as many people will remember the united states feared that the fall of vietnam would create a domino effect and other countries, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, Indonesia, Malaysia, would all fall to communism. So this was called the domino theory. So we had to stop that first domino from falling so that that we would uh, not have all the other regimes fall as well. The reverse domino theory um, was that if we could initiate that first domino field falling, and this means bad regimes, rogue regimes, regimes that are tied in with terrorists, that are producing weapons of mass destruction, that are creating instability and security threats to the United States. If we could push the first one over, that being Iraq, then all the others would fall and the United States wouldn't even have to do very much. It wouldn't have to throw out each dictator separately. It wouldn't have to undo each terrorist network individually. And so the hope was that if you demonstrate that the United States is resolved to change the world, that others like Qaddafi in Libya, Assad in Syria, the dictators in Central Asia would fall quickly, their... Programs for weapons of mass destruction would be undone. The terrorist networks would fall apart. And that was the reverse domino theory.
1: I mean, You, you developed this in the book in some length, um, and I thought it was fascinating why they had so much faith in this idea, or this idea of reverse domino theory, even though they understood the region, to, to be frank, poorly. Um, it, it In my mind, it raises the, the issues of kind of dealing in models rather than deep history and understanding, I hate to use this phrase, but the facts on the ground rather than in the laboratory of the world of uh, models and the totalitarian regimes were weak at their core, like, say, Czechoslovakia that they would just topple. Um, at the end of the day, I guess I'd like you to um, say a little bit more about that, how they reached these conclusions in their minds that it would be, you know, it would be top, toppling these regimes would be fairly easy once you whacked Iraq.
0: Right. The, the, I, I think there are two two points to be made in, in response to your question, Christian. What Number one is that these ideas were developed even before Bush came into power in the 1990s by brilliant neoconservative thinkers who were almost exclusively big picture people who had very little understanding of the particular region and the Middle East um, especially. So they had these broad theories of how the world would work and kind of mechanistic theories um, and, with, with a, not the kind of understanding that you would hope for about the nitty-gritty of day-to-day day life in particular places. That's the first issue. The second issue is that every, um, every president from Roosevelt on who saw the United States as being a world power, being everywhere all the time, and er- night and day, in every nook and cranny in the world, had to find a way to limit the United States' expenses, the resources it would put out, for fear that it would, in Dwight Eisenhower's words, go bankrupt if they tried to do everything everywhere. Now, other presidents before George W. Bush all had the same idea, that cookie-cutter model that I referred to earlier, which was we'll find strategic partners in each region of the world and they will bear some of the costs and they will take the lead and we'll sort of back them up and we don't have to do everything everywhere even though we're, um, uh, we're the world's greatest power. George W. Bush's idea, these thinkers' idea, was the way we're going to limit resources is we will ha- don't have every dictator. We don't have to root out every terrorist network, or well, we just have to set the dominoes in motion. And once we do that, spend the money in Iraq, the other places will cut, will fall into line. And so it was a way in their minds of having the United States adopt a policy that wouldn't bankrupt it.
1: Interesting. Um... To switch to switch gears uh, slightly, um, one of the chapters uh, in your book deals with the, uh, the rise of non-state actors in the Middle East um, over the course of the, the the past two. Well, more so, I guess, since the seventies, and well, in the case of the PLO, into the sixties. I was wondering if you would uh, tell us a little bit about where those fit into the picture of the modern Middle East. These non-state actors, like uh, the like Hezbollah, for example.
0: Right. the um, I have to say that the, that section was kind of prescient because um, while when I wrote the book there were certainly non-state actors like Hezbollah and Hamas that were important actors, what we have in the period since the book was written in the last two years was a proliferation of these actors like ISIS and others which all of a sudden have come to prominence in a way that even I didn't imagine when I wrote the book. So the first real serious non-state actor to play a role in the Middle East was the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, and it it was very important, and I think a model for some of the things that happened subsequently. Um, And these other actors rose as states Began to weaken. There was a moment in the 1950s and early 1960s when there was this belief that these, the new states of the Middle East would become powerful actors, centralized, purposive, coherent, cohesive, and that didn't happen. Um, These, uh, what we're seeing now uh, in the disintegration of Yemen, Libya, Iraq, Syria—the just pure disintegration of these countries—is a process that was already evident in the 1970s. That, that the cohesiveness and coherence and sen- ability to centralize power just uh, didn't didn't materialize, um, and and with it's within those kind of crevices that uh, that the state opened up where, it's, where it didn't govern, basically, that these new non-state actors began to play an important role. And if I can say a, just a, a word on ISIS um, now, um, you know, ISIS is uh, on the one hand, extraordinarily scary. I mean, anybody who's seen these videos and the beheadings and everything else has to be Deeply alarmed, the way they routed the um, the Iraqi army has to has to be quite alarmed. At the same time, I think they have been overrated. Their rule now comes in areas that basically had no government before. It wasn't like they pushed out. The State in most of the places that they're ruling now in Syria and Iraq, there was no state, there was no government, there was nothing there was nothing but chaos in these places uh, or local leadership and so I, I, I think it would be much more difficult and I, I actually I don't expect to see it for ISIS to actually take over and govern uh, a state. Um, and so many of these non-state actors pushed into these areas that were ungoverned by states and were able to emerge in that way.
1: It's an interesting point. Um, and I, I guess in my mind it raises the question of what I think um, the American public and American politicians uh, don't, I perhaps don't always think about enough. Um, is the changes in the Middle East that have taken place in the last 30 years. Uh, you and other scholars have made the argument that the population of today in the Middle East is you know, significantly different in terms of the age, the access to technology, um, the aspirations in terms of government. I mean, the, the fact that these countries have very few well-paying jobs for young people who even have gotten modern education, if you want to use that term, um, I guess, you know, when you have the government breaking down and all these questions, I mean, it raises it raises the issue of how, you know, events are going to go in the Middle East in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. So I guess, I guess to, uh, on that note, what uh, advice do you have for our current President Obama about how to, you know, conduct U.S. policy or just general advice for Americans, uh, you know, dealing with the Middle East in light of all the changes that are taking place and all the obvious um, Problems with bad governance in groups like Isis. So how would you Advise yeah. people to be
0: Well, let me, let me say a couple of things first of all American foreign policy Tends to be a bit like a pendulum and it goes too far in either direction um, in the 2000s we were far too interventionist far too much to the point that we could change this whole area that we could shape it to our liking this this wasn't going to happen and then, in the first Obama administration, we have this this withdrawal and uh, alarming to some of the united states' friends uh, that how much the United States seemed to be turning its back on the region and then now, we have yet again, you know, well, there's a, the, the United States involved and probably over-involved. Um, it, the pendulum keeps swinging. And I, I would argue that the United States has to recognize this is a region in deep, deep trouble. Um, it is one where the convulsions that are occurring now have no clear end. That the United States has strong interests in the region to keep the shipping lanes open to make sure that the regimes that are friendly to the United States and that the people that are friendly to the United States can operate without, um, without threat to them. Um, the, there are many, many interests that the United States continues to have in the region, but then it can't shape this region and it can't solve all these problems. It cannot stop the convulsions. What it can do is to ally with others and help to manage the crises as best as possible. And um, therefore, it's it, it seems to me not um, – I, I think I make the point somewhere in the book that now, we, we always when we have a problem, instead of seeing them as crises to be managed, we see them as wars, war, the war on drugs, the war on terror. Um, and these become um, outsized responses. And I think that the United States has to be very careful now not to have an outsized response and not to swing too far to the other side of not being involved at all.
1: Just to find that happy medium. Uh, as far as policy? Right. Okay.
0: Think about foreign policy in terms of crisis management rather than reshaping regions, states, and the like.
1: Interesting. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, you you have a chapter on the Obama administration, and you you said a few words about it, but is it just, you know is is you think there's anything that he can uh, his administration can accomplish um that would be of real value before he his term is over or is it more uh you know just do the best you can deal with the fires until someone can until the next election and someone is elected who can come in with a fresh uh start if, if you want to use that term yeah well it's
0: going to be very hard to have major achievements now um in the book, I suggest that the United States get behind, in a serious way, get behind the Arab Peace Initiative, which was a plan floated in 2002 and still very, very much on the table, um, that would have allied Israel, the United States, um, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, some of the Persian Gulf states, Jordan. Um, them into a coalition that would try to um, minimize uh, uh, the the forces arrayed against them in the Middle East. Um, it depended upon the United States helping and urging Israel to solve the Palestinian problems again because it's hard to build a coalition with Israel as long as As long as you have Arab states, and the Palestinian problem still exists, the um, you know they tried uh, to solve the Palestinian issue, and it didn't work. And I don't think with the current leadership in Israel, it can work. Uh, But I do think that is the direction that the Obama administration has to take. It has to be looking to create coalitions, um, backing up the uh, peoples and regimes and urging them to, um, you know, to move forward on, on um, democracy and other issues without having the illusion that it can shape them and get them to do everything it wants.
1: Interesting. Um, do you think that the U.S. relationship with Turkey will improve significantly in the coming years, or will it stay, you know, relatively... For like, I mean, it seems to have uh, some tensions, obviously. Um, But where do you think that relationship will evolve?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, It's certainly not going to return to what it was in the nineteen fifties and sixties, seventies and eighties, when Turkey was steadfast the member, a steadfast member of NATO, and its attention was really turned towards the Soviet Union and helping the United States in the Cold War. Um, for a variety of reasons, Turkey has become a much more independent actor, and an independent actor means sometimes you're going to like what they do and sometimes you're not going to like what they do. And they've moved also to much more engagement uh, with the the Middle East. I think the United States and Turkey still have a lot of common interests. Certainly the um the uh the uh, ISIS and the and the um, uh, various uh, uh other uh non-state actors who are really posing serious problems on Turkey's border including a huge refugee problem. I think Turkey more and more is going to see itself lining up with the United States on this issue. At first, it thought, "Well, these issues, these these terrorist groups like ISIS are Sunni Muslims, and we're Sunni Muslims, therefore we can find common cause with them." I think that's going to evaporate very quickly, and so I think there. And I think also Turkey will begin to move back to some kind of. Accommodation with Israel, which is also uh, a, a policy that the United States has been pushing. So I do think, and there are many commercial interests and economic interests of this year. So I do think that the United States and Turkey are going to have some move closer in the next year or so, um, but I don't think it's going to be dramatic
1: okay i mean it would seem to me that turkey would have to play a role in any sort of palestinian settlement and regional settlement it seems like a country that's in a unique position like you said being a sunni country that you know is experiencing some economic growth and has you know maybe not the you know most uh, open government at times but certainly a competent government um and um, a government that functions far better than you know a lot of governments in the middle east um
0: yeah, the the problem for Turkey is and so it's a little hard to predict right now, is that its basic foreign policy that it had nurtured for the last ten years has fallen apart. That policy gave it gave a name to that policy, which was called Zero Problems with Neighbors. And um it meant that they, they had a reconciliation with Syria They were um, developing closer relations with Iran. They were moving towards uh, better relations with Egypt. Um, Their relations with Israel were good. This is all up through about 2009. And so they they really saw themselves as facilitators. They were going to be the mediators between the United States and Iran. They were going to facilitate talks between the Fatah of the PLO and Hamas. They were going to be brokers between Israel and the Palestinians, and so on and so forth. All that has fallen apart. Not only do they have not have zero problems with neighbors, they have multiple problems on every border with neighbors. Um, their relationship with, with Israel has fallen apart. With Syria, it's, uh, they, they, have, they were among the first to jump on the bandwagon against uh, Bashar al-Assad. Um, their relations with egypt have fallen apart altogether so the question now is well, what are they going to do if everything's falling apart what is their new policy going to be And i don't think they know yet and so we just have to watch this carefully
1: yes i, I agree um I, I know i'm taking a lot of your time but i have uh, one more question i'd like to ask i could probably ask 20 more um but i certainly want to get in one more before we run out of time um in my u s foreign policy classes, I devote uh, a fair amount of attention to uh, the Fukuyama and Huntington articles about uh, you know the class of civilization and the end of history. Um, And I'm interested what your take is, and I I can sort of guess what you you would argue, but it seems a lot of, uh, at least among the general public, really kind of see Huntington's argument as having a lot of explanatory power about uh, the recent impasse and uh, kind of the way the world has grown so turbulent since the end of the Cold War. and you're in, based on your expertise, what would you say, how would you evaluate uh, Huntington's arguments, you know, that he made in the early 1990s, you know, moving ahead to 2014?
0: Yeah, so first I should, I should say as a public disclosure, um, Samuel Huntington was my dissertation advisor, and we had a close relationship. Um, he was very helpful to me in, in my career. Um, I don't buy his argument on the clash of civilizations and I think it actually has done more harm than good um, he wrote this you know in the 1990s as and and, and or uh, and Fukuyama about the same time when they were looking towards the end of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War trying to figure out what the world would look like in the future um I think what the argument misses is how heterogeneous and complex these areas are. These so-called civilizations are. I think it would be the the Muslim civilization that he he, he labels. I mean, you, you know, I have students from this region. Um, Uh, who, you know, are so dead set against some of the um, trends that they see in their country and some of the groups. These there are many many forces at work here to give them a kind of overall an overarching framework of calling them uh, Islamic civilization really doesn't do justice to the complexity of what we're seeing. there. And I think this is a lesson for American foreign policy. There are allies for us to make in this region, and there are those who see what well, you know our our um, principles um, of uh, equality for women, of, of of human rights, and of others as uh, just as relevant to their regions as they are to the United States. And I think, and I think that's that was missed in that in that argument.
1: Yeah, that, that's a fair point. I think um, both the articles in their in their own, the Fukuyama and Huntington, have their uh, certainly their blind spots. So I'm uh, sorry for taking up so much of your time. Uh, the interviews we've gone over an hour now, um, and I, I, I have one final question. I was uh, wondering what future plans you have, what uh, your projects you might be working on or envision yourself doing in the uh, next uh, couple of years.
0: Well, actually, I'm turning to a question that was raised in my mind, um, and is probably even more sharp now than it was when it was raised in my mind years ago. Um, When I would, you know, did research in India and in the Middle East, I would see, um, you know, various groups, you know, just to give a, a quick anecdote, I would see a, a, a guy from the countryside come into the city and go up to a kiosk and try to buy a sandwich and this is an actual thing that I witnessed and the and the fellow uh, says, I'd like to order a sandwich and, and the kiosk owner says, sure, what kind of sandwich would you like? And he thinks to himself, I didn't mean, actually said I was waiting in line behind me." he said, I can't tell you what kind of sandwich, you have to tell me and the store owner said no, no yeah, you're the customer, you tell, and so what you saw was this um, the lack of a kind of common set of rules for how to interact day by day and that's a very trivial example that I'm giving but what I'm trying to get at is when does a public form where people have an understanding of problems, not that they agree on the problem, but they have a common understanding of what the problem is, of what the rules of interaction are, of how you treat someone else. And it seems to me that that's key to democracy. I'm actually going to look at this over a long span from, uh, in the United States From the middle of the 19th century, when we started to urbanize and we created what I call a society of strangers, where you were constantly interacting with people you never saw before in your life and may never see again in your life every day. How did the rules of that interaction form? How did they disadvantage some people, benefit others? How were they changed? And what relationship did that have to the creation of a working democracy so that 's my that 's my project for the future
1: well wow, that's that 's quite a turn and a very interesting idea um, it 's it's funny you mentioned that I just uh, was putting together uh, uh, for a wide variety of reasons readings on de tocqueville um, for ah, for school hey. and ah. I was going back and reading some of his observations on democracy. And it's, it seems to me that, I mean, those are very interesting questions, and the questions that he poses in his observation, in my mind, are just as relevant today as they were back in the 1840s. I mean, the, the question of how people interact and the norms and the, the civil society that he pays so much attention to, its it's all really thought-provoking, interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, far be it from me uh, to even feel I'm in the same category as Tocqueville, but I really try, I want to extend some of his kinds of observations of how a society coheres and when, and, 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 but also with also the idea that whenever that happens, there are underlying rules, and rules always disadvantage some people. And cause tension, so I, I I want to look at that, um, uh, you know, in 2014 instead of uh, when he did in the uh, in the 19th century.
1: And, uh, yes, it's it's interesting, and uh, it's you know I don't mean to keep you on the line, but the the role of social media today. I, I had a student in class who wanted to. Uh, she wanted to organize uh, a protest against big rapids policy and all she really did to kind of get people to protest was write it on her facebook page and she couldn't figure out why people weren't kind of joining up with her to go protest this policy and Mm -hmm. it's my mind it would be like you got to go out there you got to recruit you got to go door to door you got to do the nuts and bolts of that of that type of stuff so right that's that's true you know, so so uh, well. Thank you for your time, Joel. It was uh, I enjoyed reading Shifting Sands. I think it's a book that will be beneficial for American policymakers, general public, and pretty much you know everyone all over the world to read. And it was uh, a joy to talk to you today. Um,
0: thank you, Christian. It you know. was a pleasure for me too.
1: Thank you for listening to New Books in World Affairs. We hope you join us again in the very near future. Take care.